This is episode 58 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we are back with Dr. Marty Brodsky. Uh, He's been on a couple episodes before. He was on episode 21, where he talked about the uh, 24-hour myth wait time for post-extubation assessment, and then he was also on episode 46 when we did our at-the-table, roundtable discussion with Dr. Paul Leslie. So uh, that was a great, fun segment, and we are hoping to do that again. I know people have been asking when we can do that again. As soon as all of our schedules coordinate, we will sit down and record another one of those episodes. So it's always great to get her on that episode, and we weren't able to snag her for this. So Dr. Dr. Leslie, you were definitely missed here, but uh, we had a good conversation anyways. Uh, this is Dr. Brodsky talking about the systematic review of laryngeal injury that he just released, and really, really good stuff here. Really interesting, especially for our SLPs that work in acute care and in the ICU. So uh, hopefully you guys learn a lot from this episode. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Happy October. It's fall. Who's excited for fall? I'm so excited for fall. I just had my birthday, so I always get so excited when it's fall and leaves and pumpkin spice latte weather. Yes, very much so. Um, So when is the Medical SLP Solution website going to open for enrollment again? It's going to be very soon, hopefully within the next week or two. So A lot of people have been asking when we are going to reopen it, and it's as soon as our new website is complete. When I created this website back in January-ish, February-ish, I'm trying to think when we even started it, had no idea how many people would enroll and how successful it would become and, again, carry on a life of its own, but I am beyond humbled and excited for everybody that's in this that has made such huge gains with their patients, but Anyways, we pretty much crashed the site, so (laughs) we had to build a whole new one. So we have a whole new one being built and should be done within the next week or two. We have 1,300 members in the Medical SLP Solution. I am, that just shocks me, floors me. I know I sit here behind the scenes and just type, type, type away, (laughs) and I'm beyond grateful to all the contributors that helped to contribute to make that what it is. So if you're interested in knowing what the Medical SLP Solution site is. It really was a spinoff of everything that you guys have been asking for here on the podcast. So um, on the podcast, I I can only give you so much. (laughs) I can bring out all these fantastic guests for you and ask questions. And um, But sometimes you just need something tangible to go back and use with your patients. So uh, the Medical SLP Solution is a membership site, a monthly membership site. And every week you get a new resource Uh, either something that I've written or any of our wonderful contributors. We've had over about 15 different contributors, um, various university professors, experts in their field. Uh, So each resource is also blind peer-reviewed by other professors in the field to make sure that it is accurate, evidence-based, up-to-date, not biased. Uh, So you get one of those resources every week. They come in either a handout 
and a handout, and also I record a video about it, so you can just listen to it while you're driving or watch it on your free time, and also the handout to go in and use with your patients. Uh, we've also started doing some done-for-you in-services, so we have an in-service all about oral care and in-service all about the Fraser Free Water Protocol, so if those are programs you've been wanting to implement in your facilities, don't know where to start, what information do we believe, what's up to date, We've done the dirty work for you. So I even give you all the slides for that. So you can go ahead and make it all your own presentation. So uh, that's one part of the medical SLP solution. Uh, two more parts. Another part is we do have a monthly webinar that is registered for ASHA CEUs every month. Uh, and so what you can do is when you join, you can go back and listen to all the previous ones and you can get CEUs for all the previous ones that we already have up there and then participate in the live ones each month as they come. And lastly, we have the private Facebook group. And if you don't like Facebook, we also have a private forum on the website. So we have moderators that go in and answer all of your questions. Make sure that you're getting the most up-to-date evidence-based practice information. Um, and our motto for the medical SLP solution is we've developed our own ACE model. Um, advocacy, compassion, and evidence. So that's what I think all SLPs should keep in mind when treating their patients, and that's what we really emphasize here in this community. So if you're interested in joining, go to medslpsolution.com. Uh, like I said, should be open in the next week or two. If it's not, put your name on the waiting list at the bottom. You'll be notified as soon as it opens. Uh, enrollment will be open for about a week or two and then shutting it down again, and that's just because I am not an internet marketer. <laughs> I have a speech pathologist. I have patients to see. I have a lot of people to help. So I want to dedicate my time to the people working in the site um, and also to my patients. So um, that's why I don't have time to keep it open all the time because it's a lot of work. So hope that answers all of your juicy questions that you might want to ask me about it. But I would like to add what some people have been saying about the medical SLP solution. Um, so I had asked a question, what is one big thing that the medical SLP solution has helped you to accomplish? And this is our friend Julie Graham. She said, confidence. I've learned more here than I ever did in school and that I am not alone. I'm doing some things right, you know, self-doubt, and that we can learn together to do better. The medical SLP solution has given me confidence to make referrals for solo studies, increase goal expectations, and to strive for better therapy methods in my treatment sessions. Honestly, all that I can think about is how much I want to thank you. I was new to the sniff after 30 plus years in the schools. I came home and searched the internet for help with swallowing, and here you were. I believe in faith in God for directions in our lives and our purposes for where we are and what we do. I went into the sniff blind, but it has been so rewarding. You are here to help. You have a gift, and you shared that gift with me to make me better. Never doubt what you are doing. Not only are you making us all better clinicians, you have a part in changing the lives of all of our patients combined. That is an incredible story. Thank you. Thank you, Julie, for sharing that with me. Uh, I, I'm beyond honored and humbled to hear that. But again, all of this is for our patients. We all got into this field to help our patients. So I think that's what's so important is that, yes, dysphagia is so important, but we also treat so many other conditions also. And we have experts and moderators in, in the group for aphasia, voice, motor, motor speech, cognition, dementia, um, various different conditions that we all treat. So that's also important to keep up with. So again, if you're interested in joining, we'll be opening the doors soon. Go to medslpsolution.com. Add your name to the waiting list if it's not open when you hear this. So uh, that's enough about this, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Marty. Hello, Teresa. How are you? Wonderful. How are you? I'm doing well. 
Thank you for joining us again. I'm happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Yes. Um, so I know we we originally had you back. Oh, gosh. Kind of sort of a few episodes ago. Uh, we did a round the table episode with Dr. Paula Leslie, and she's in the beginning of crazy semester beginning H-E double hockey sticks. So uh, she couldn't join us tonight, but that's all right. We'll have a good conversation anyways. I'm looking forward to it, and we will definitely catch her once things settle down a little bit in Pittsburgh. Yes. So all the uh, there was a lot of buzz on social media last week about this new paper that you published, and I think it flipped a lot of heads upside down, and I think there's a lot that we should talk about and say what the paper said, what it didn't say, what answers we did not get from it, but um, it's good to just get our brains moving in that direction. So Tell us what, what you've been up to. Well, uh, specifically with this paper, it, you know, I had an itch. Um, so let me <laughs> need to talk about the paper and tell everybody what paper it is first. Yes, right? yes. Okay. Um, so this is a paper that hit the press, if you will, uh, Critical Care Medicine. And the title of the paper is called Laryngeal Injury and Upper Airway Symptoms After Oral Endotracheal Intubation with mechanical ventilation during critical care, a systematic review. So this was um, truly one of those labors of love. And in some sense, one of those things that I felt really necessary to do, uh, mostly because there was not really consensus in the literature and still is a, a tremendous amount of information that's not known in post-extubation land from ICU. One of the biggest things that I continually think about is that speech-language pathologists, although they're making their entrance, if you will, into ICUs more frequently these days, they're still very grossly under-referred. And uh, for the physicians that do refer to them and do know of their services, patients and healthcare staff get along very well. Um, things go well. Patients get better. Patients move on to lower levels of care. For other physicians, um, there seems to be uh, an unculture shift, if you will. Um, and, and what I relate it back to, I was just speaking with a colleague of mine in the Netherlands. What I relate it to is back in the 90s, the thought was that you don't refer to a speech language pathologist unless you're looking to put a speaking valve on someone, hand somebody a letter board, or refer to them as they're leaving the ICU. Effectively, it was no place for a speech-language pathologist. I Those think times that's common changing. practice. Yeah, I think that's still common practice in a lot of places. It's, and it really is. And it's times are very different now. And there's a giant culture shift uh, that is starting to happen in critical care medicine, never mind rehab services. Uh, in critical care medicine specifically, there's a very large movement to reduce sedation, get patients up and physically active, walking around the unit, even on the mechanical ventilator. I think many of the listeners know what I'm talking about. Um, but the reality is that we're still not increasing the referrals to speech-language pathology, even though these patients are awake, alert, capable of responding. In fact, I'll even go out on a limb right here uh, to say that there were guidelines that were just released within the last couple weeks to a month 
regarding agitation, sedation, sleeping, delirium, things of this nature, that had no speech-language pathologist as an author or a contributor on that paper. And in my head, that raised a little bit of an exclamation point, um, sort of like a comic that you would see in, in the cartoons. I just see um, your head on fire. I, that's exactly right. <laughs> um, you know, smoke coming out of my ears a little bit, uh, mostly from the standpoint that speech-language pathologists um, really help with improving attention. And if you think about the hallmarks of delirium, loss of attention, lack of attention, reduced attention, alternating attention is a major hallmark of delirium. If you maintain attention, you cannot have delirium, period. So anybody who works in acute care and very specifically with a neuro patient, um, and we have many of those uh, in speech language pathology and other professions, yes, um, we excel in improving attention. Um, and if you believe that we excel in improving intention, then you have to believe that we would excel in reducing delirium and its long-term effects. So why weren't we invited to the table? And of course, that's a rhetorical question. I don't have that answer. Yes. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's, so there's the culture, you know, we're not being brought to the table with something so basic as attention, and we're already late to the game uh, trying to get into the voice issues post-extubation, and we're late into the game with regard to swallowing issues. So in effect, or in sum, there's every reason to believe that we have no place in the ICU under current culture, or at least past culture. Yes. Um, personally, I think that culture is the equivalent of a Petri dish and it needs to be thrown out. Yes. Um, it is no longer acceptable to ignore speech language pathology. And I'm even going to go out into, uh, the realm of occupational therapy is also right alongside us. Well, I think um, it's funny, not funny, but you know, that conversation I had with Dr. Madison mocked a few episodes back too, and he was a critical care doctor and just said that he thought that, critical care physicians and speech pathologists should go together like peanut butter and jelly is how closely they should be working in the ICU. And the reality that it's not happening in so many other places is just was mind blowing to him as well. Yeah, I now we are, thankfully, of the younger generation. I am not at all pointing fingers at the older generation and those who are have been around the veterans who've been around 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, but I am saying, and, and I am pointing a finger very directly back into the thinking that was the 90s. Um, this is 2018. We are well beyond that point, um, 20 plus years in the making here. And we have uh, should have a very firm hold in the ICU with getting these patients um, to improve communication, to reduce delirium, to get them swallowing faster um, in terms of oral intake, not, not a reduced delay in their swallow. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, and to, at the very least, monitor, if not outright treat, voice disorders post-extubation. Um, so coming back to this paper, 
Um, as you can see, my head has been spinning in multiple directions. And it's one of those things where I, something needed to be done. Um, and when I initially went into this, it was a very um, modest look at what it was that we were doing post-extubation. Um, the obvious thing to me was that if you stick a tube down somebody's throat and put it between the vocal cords, there's likely to be some injury in that area. So immediately voice comes to mind, and we all know this. Anybody who has seen uh, or been through post-extubation themselves know that they have a sore throat, that they have a raspy voice at the very least in most cases. So, okay, where do we go with this? How do we begin with this? You know, what is it that's wrong? And for the last couple of years or few years, we've seen a few articles talk about laryngeal injury and relate it in some form or fashion to dysphagia. So the initial thrust of this article was to take a look at the association of laryngeal injury and dysphagia, but the eye-opener wasn't the dysphagia. It was the amount of laryngeal injury that's effectively being ignored. Yes. Um, and I do not use that term loosely. I mean that very specifically. There are no guidelines, period. No critical care guidelines, no speech-language pathology guidelines, no laryngology guidelines, nothing post-extubation. So that was the giant eye-opener, uh, because in the midst of the systematic review, I saw uh, guidelines published that dealt with simply hoarseness. Within those guidelines for hoarseness, they alluded to, talked about outright post-extubation laryngeal injury, but there are no guidelines on post-extubation laryngeal injury. So now the question is, is hoarseness really the thing we need to be concerned about? Yeah. And when, and when you say, let me correct, let me not correct you, but back up a second. When you say no guidelines, what specifically are you looking for? So when I say guidelines, I'm talking about who do we assess? Who do we determine to assess in the first place? I.e., who are, who are the ones most at risk? Because maybe you don't want to assess everybody. That's hugely resource demanding, time consuming, et cetera. And more to the point, once you've assessed them and you figure out what happens, does this stuff go away on its own? Or do we need to treat it in some way, whether it's medically with medications, uh, maybe inhaled steroids, maybe antibiotics, things along those lines? Or are we talking about voice therapy? Uh, maybe it's a combinative therapy between the two. And in either case, patients are leaving the hospital in days to weeks with the potential of laryngeal injuries that continue to fester and end up as very difficult problems on the back end. Now, to give you some idea, uh, I've been working with colleagues in the otolaryngology department who are researching laryngeal stenosis. The, when last I heard, there's about a 3% prevalence of laryngeal stenosis post-extubation. So now, begets the question of, we could have done something about this post-extubation, couldn't we? Dun-dun-dun. Or could we? Yeah, I, and I, I, again, I, I think this paper 
answers relatively few questions when compared with the ones that it asks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's where it all began. Yeah. Um, so in some sense, getting into the paper, um, we took a look at a very wide literature. And uh, my colleague, Carrie Price, who is uh, a medical librarian and informationist at Johns Hopkins, uh, created the search in three databases. And I can tell you just in creating that search, it was somewhere between a three to six month process Crazy. to just nail down the search. And it largely stemmed from the difficulties of spelling, um, strange as that may sound, uh, but spellings really came into play here. Um, the different terminologies that are used across the world for laryngeal injury and extubation and post-extubation and um, tracheal intubation and endotracheal intubation. I mean, I've just put together four, five or six terms there Yeah. Um, and all of the searches relative. So it was a very concerted effort to knock out the stuff that we didn't want in the search and really focus in on the stuff that we did. Um, and I praise and kudos to her because I can assure you, none of the rest of the nine of us could have done it even combined. That um, just sounds like an incredible job to begin with. She is brilliant. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, all of the authors on this have to owe Carrie a great deal of um, kudos and thanks and uh, a tremendous amount of homage paid to her expertise in this. Um, there's just no two ways about it. This this review never could have been completed in its um, level of completeness, if you will, um, without her being involved. It's just, yeah. we owe a lot to her. Um, so, you know, she effectively found over 4,500 articles. Um, and for anybody who's done a systematic review or knows what goes into it, screening 4,500 articles is a daunting task just by itself. Um, when I remember when the search initially began, we were at 3,666. Um, and it was just a number that just kind of rang in my ears uh, for a while. I think but, that's what Deb Suter said on her Yale, or Yale Swallow Protocol episode too. She remembered the number specifically because she went through every single piece of data. You bet. Uh, and <laughs> that number I can doesn't tell leave you, your head. Um, it, it is, it's a, a Herculean task to do this. So my colleagues, Brendan Blackford and uh, Aaron Yedlanik were the ones to have sifted through all of those articles, 100%. And are, are, they, are they PhDs, Marty? They are not, in fact. Uh, Brendan, in fact, uh, just graduated, I believe, with his bachelor's degree. And Aaron is a speech-language pathologist in our outpatient clinic. Um, so it was wonderful to give them the opportunity to experience what a systematic review is all about. And they loved it. Yes. Um, so much so that Aaron is actually back with me doing a scoping review right now which, uh, as you know, because you're involved with it, 
is a very large task as well. Yes. Uh, maybe we could just plug the upcoming episode about that a year from now. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was um, uh, knee deep in that all day today. So yes. Oh, good. Yes. Um, we'll just leave that sit and brew for a minute. Yeah. Um, so the reason why we have 4,511 right now is because effectively the data got old. As you go through a systematic review, once you begin the search and the search absolutely comes to an end on whatever date it does, for all intents and purposes, it has an expiration date. Now, there are some journals that say that will allow some flexibility with that and that if you publish your results within six months, you're good to go. There are other journals that will say, no, 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 no. During the review, they'll come back at you and say, we'd like another search. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. So therein lies the difference between the 3,066 and the uh, 4,511 in that the data truly were getting old. Um, We were not told by a journal that they were old but it was about eight months since we had made the initial poll because of the 126 full text reviews to pull the data, okay? Um, You know, all 126 of those articles needed to be pulled. Once they were pulled, they needed to be accepted or rejected. So that took time. And then once we came down to the 29 studies that were finally accepted, made it through all inclusion exclusion criteria, we now actually had to pull data. And we had to train each other to pull the data, to be reliable in pulling those data. And that took time because all data, whether it was from the screening at the 4,500 plus or it was down to the 29 that finally came in and beyond down into the ultimate nine articles that made it into the review, all data were pulled not only blindly, but doubly um, with not less than two people involved at all levels. So there was a tremendous amount of rigor into this systematic review Um, And we knew that we had to be there. That's just the way to do a systematic review. Anything less is suspect. So, you know, ultimately, as you can imagine, going from 3,666 on the initial poll to get down to the final nine uh, was one thing. But here we are now, eight months later, saying, okay, what did we miss? Yeah. So when we went back, we pulled, give or take, another 850, 860 articles, and we had to repeat the process for those 860. Um, and I believe we found one or two extra uh, that ultimately made it into the review. Gotcha. So that's really the work that goes into uh, creating this flow diagram that you'll see in any systematic review. That's just what happens. Um, it, it's as formulaic as putting bread to uh, putting butter to bread with a butter knife, slapping it together and creating a sandwich. Um, just easy as that. Just as easy as that. <laughs> just takes a little bit more time. That's yeah. All. Let me ask you, were you, 
how did you feel about that nine or 10 that you ended up with? Was that a shocking number to you or what were you expecting? I always love to hear researchers (laughs) hypothesis. Yeah. Um, you know, the hope was to see more. Yeah. Because if we saw more, there'd be an opportunity to run better analyses. There'd be an opportunity to draw stronger conclusions. Uh, there'd be an opportunity to see um, different sets of data at the very least that would have collected different pieces of information that could have illuminated things that we were looking for. In the end, um, the nine that we have were effectively scattered all over the place in terms of what they collected and how they collected them which is a very stark reminder for how really difficult it is to collect data in the ICU. Yeah. Um, It is tremendously difficult uh, to do it. And whether it was validation or a self-fulfilling prophecy, um, I personally, of course, do data collection and work with ICU patients all the time. And it was somewhat validating (laughs) to see how difficult it it's was. just not not just you, yeah. Um, so I, I'm glad I'm not out on a limb by myself and in Never Neverland and and uh, or living in a bubble somewhere. Um, you know, I get that comment all the time working at Hopkins, and there's uh, every reason to believe that in many different respects. But data collection is not one of them. Yeah, um, it is ubiquitous across the world. I would imagine. Yeah, it is just a difficult population to collect data in. Yeah. All right. So let's get to the goods. So what did, what did the systematic review tell us? So the systematic review told us uh, this was a little bit more shocking, I think. Okay. Um, The average age of the person, there were 775 patients across the nine studies that got into the systematic review. The average age was 53 years old. Wow. Um, the you know obviously not spring chickens but this is not the old old that we're often thinking end of life and things along those lines um and when you think about this uh, from the standpoint and the standard deviation by the way was only 7 years um so if you think about it you know one standard deviation either side of 53 brings you down anywhere between um 46 years and 60 years. Um, So the vast majority of patients are in that age range. Um, What was even more interesting, I think, because if you're on the wards and you're in the ICUs and you have some thinking, some notion as to how long these patients are actually intubated, I was a little bit surprised by this. And the mean intubation duration was eight days. So these aren't the folks who are on the vent for 24 to 48 hours. And these are, most of them are not on the vent for two weeks. Um, But they're on the vent for an average of over a week. Um, The standard deviation there was six days. So anywhere between two days and 14 days is the first standard deviation. Um, And that's quite a range. Yes. Okay. So that kind of explains the patients uh, that we saw. 
um, we saw all what, what we referred to as grades of injury from zero being absolutely normal to grade three being the worst of the worst. We saw everything, interestingly enough. Um, the major findings that we had is that within three days of being scoped, so I'm talking scopes less than 24 hours, scopes less than 48 hours, and scopes less than 72 hours. Little was given up with a delayed uh, introduction of an endoscope to take a look at these folks, effectively saying that injuries just don't go away in three days. Okay. When we took a look, of course, as you would expect, the less severe injuries are more common. So the swelling, the edema, the redness or the erythema, those are the big ones. Okay. And I can tell you that although the average across studies is reported at 74% across all studies, that is not the real story. You would think that based on all seven all studies, with 74% being the average that these people are affected at these grade one injuries is the final answer, right? Well, the reality is that if you take a look within grade one and you take a look at the edema, the erythema, uh, the hyperplasia, the ecchymosis, and all of the problems that go on in there, yes, edema and erythema are the highest and the most prevalent, but interestingly enough, 95 to 96% of patients will end up with either or both of those being the injury. So in some sense, the 74% is misleading as you read it in the table. You need to take a look at the appendixes at the, uh, that, are often, that are offered as supplements to the article to find out the real and the raw numbers because these averages across studies are a little bit misleading. One of the things, here's another figure that will kind of blow your mind a little bit. 17% of people will walk away post-extubation with zero injury. I don't believe it for a second. Ah. Not a second. And the reason why is because I know there's at least some injury in even a four-hour surgery. Yeah. Okay. Is that just what we don't know? You know, patients aren't reporting symptoms. Why do you think that that isn't so? It could be a combination. Again, I think part of it was the way the data were collected. So for example, studies, some studies looked for very specific injury, meaning did we see paralysis or not? Did we see stenosis or not? So they effectively ignored any other injury that could have happened. And they only reported on those specific injuries that they were interested in. Gotcha. Okay. So the data are uh, potentially skewed in the wrong direction, meaning if you read our systematic review, you might walk away thinking that I've got a 17% chance of not being injured despite the time of intubation. Yeah. No, wrong answer. Yeah. Wrong message. Keep reading. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> in fact, you have a far greater chance 
of having at least a mild injury. And, and I would almost go out on the limb to say that you're pretty well guaranteed. Yeah. The question is how bad? Yeah. Um, so as we continue, you take a look at grade two injury. Um, and interestingly enough, these are the patients that I see most often. Um, the patients with hematomas, ulcerations, um, some glottic narrowing, um, uh, you know, granulation tissue or granulomas. These are um, uh, often the case uh, when you have durations of intubation, certainly longer than 48 hours. Now, the average is 31% across all studies reporting those injuries, okay? But it ranges anywhere between 27 and 36%, depending on the type of injury you're talking about. So granulomas, intubation granulomas, for example, are about 27% across five studies. When you talk about vocal processes uh, that are ulcerated, because that's where the endotracheal tube is hanging out, you're up to about 36%. Oh, wow. in the two studies that reported that out, that outcome. So again, I, the big message here is you can take a look at these averages, but if you really want to know the full story, you've got to take a look at the supplemental tables that we offer. Okay. Um, so, you know, we, we move on and, you know, we think about, what is it that happens functionally after the tube comes out? It's nice to talk about the injuries, but okay, they have injuries. Um, I guess it's the doctor that deals with that. Not necessarily. Is it the voice therapist that deals with it? Well, if they were referred, maybe. But the reality is that there are no guidelines to get the referral in the first place. And often, post-extubation, the first contact is all about swallowing. It's not about voice. And now let's put some numbers uh, behind the swallowing so that we can have a better idea of where the voice problems are. If you take a look at the complaints and the problems post-extubation, we see that dysphagia has approximately a 49% prevalence post-extubation. Okay, that's across all 775 patients in the studies that were reporting that outcome. And interestingly enough, although there were only 75, I'm going to backtrack a little bit, although there were 775 patients that came into our systematic review, only 319 were used for the dysphagia outcome. And 49% of those were the ones who had dysphagia. Okay. So again, not all data across all studies are being collected along those lines, something we need to do better in the future. Yeah. All right. So 49% is a springboard, right? For the problems yes. that we're seeing about swallowing. Yes. And we know that swallowing is the primary referral post-extubation, right? You need the patient yes. eating, right? Yep. Well, how about the 76% that have voice disorders? They're fine. Yeah. No need for therapy, right? Crazy. How about the same 76%, although they're probably different people, who complain of pain post-extubation? What attention are they getting? Hmm. How about, and this is a good one, 
dyspnea, difficulty breathing. That's unimportant either. No, unimportant. 23%. And those who have had Strider, 7%. And we know that Strider is a bad thing and often results in re-intubation if it gets bad enough. Yeah. So again, you know, dysphagia is only a portion of the story. Yet it's, for all intents and purposes, 100% of the evaluations. Yep. Of the small percent of the SLPs that are even going into the ICU. There it is. Yeah. Okay. So now let me add another layer of difficulty here. Most of the patients coming out of the ICU are going for video fluoroscopy. Promise dun, you dun, you're not going to see again. laryngeal injury on video fluoroscopy very yeah. well. So are we doing the wrong test? Arguably, <laughs> I would suggest that it's not the best test post-extubation. It's a test. Video fluoroscopy can certainly get somebody swallowing, but it's not going to capture stenosis. It's not going to capture laryngeal injury. So now the question is, and it was somewhat answered by Rebecca Scheel, working with Susan Langmore in Boston, what is the association of aspiration and penetration with laryngeal injury. So I want to turn our attention a little bit to that article. Yes. That one came out in the Annals of Otolaryngology, Rhinology, and Laryngology in 2016. Uh, Rebecca Shields, the first author on that article. And what they took a look at was penetration and aspiration across 59 patients using fees within 72 hours post-extubation. 44 of those 59 patients were evaluated in 24 hours or less post-extubation. Eight of the 44, or about 18%, aspirated. Okay. 15 were evaluated in longer than 24 hours. And maybe it was because of delirium, maybe it was because of the inability to get to the patient because the patient was unavailable for whatever other reason. Maybe it was because the patient was altered in some way and they just were not appropriate. Okay. So of those 15, five of those aspirated. Okay. Or about 35%. Now of the total between those two sets of aspirators, if you will, there were 13 people who aspirated of the 59 total in the study total of 22% who aspirated, okay? And if that sounds a little bit familiar, it's the same, um, give or take 25% that you see in other studies, okay? Five of those 13 were silently aspirating, or about 38% of those who were aspirating were silently aspirating. So. You know, there's absolutely an indication here that there's the association between um, intubation slash extubation and a swallowing disorder. Now, let's turn our attention one more time. So in the same study, they paired 
all of the injuries, laryngeal injuries that they found and took a look at PA scale scores. And what they found was a significant association with increased PA scale scores um, with the injuries that occurred post-extubation, or that at least they found post-extubation. So therein lies, I'm going to sidetrack just a little bit here. Laryngeal injury, when we find it, either occurred prior to and during the time the tube is being placed. It occurred during the time the tube was in situ and or occurred during the time of extubation. And at no time in a speech-language pathologist's career anyway, will we be able to tell where and when those things occurred. All that we see is the aftermath. Now, there are hints along the way that will show signs of how these injuries occurred. Um, but I can tell you, I ain't going to the bank on any one of them. Yeah. Okay. If we see them in the aftermath. If we see them in the aftermath in the first place. So as I said, uh, there is a significant association with increased PA scale scores. There's an approximate significant association with aspiration. So bottom line here is that there seems to be an association very broadly with laryngeal injury and reducing function when it comes to swallowing. So simply evaluating swallowing is only part of the story. We need to take a look at the laryngeal injury too. And maybe it's the laryngeal injury that's causing the swallowing problem. We know, or at least by the work that I've done and others, that ICU is part of the battle, of course. Yeah. But what is it that is the bigger culprit? Do we need to know which is the bigger culprit? Or do we just need to know, need to know that simple, and I use the term loosely, critical care is the problem? And very specifically with intubation. So the next time you evaluate a patient post-extubation, one of the things that you really need to take into consideration is the voice. It cannot be ignored. Yeah. And unfortunately, video fluoroscopy cannot lend a very helping hand in that direction. Yeah. So take-home points from the systematic review, and there are a few of them, is that intubation duration does matter. We know that now. It's in all of the research that came before us. All we did was put it together and voila, there it is. It came out and jumped off the page at us. That duration does matter. With increased duration comes increased injury. Post-extubation laryngeal injury is common. It's very common. And thankfully, um, the more severe injuries are the ones that are also less common. There is a very, very, very small fraction who will leave intubation without injury. 
it is a foregone conclusion in most realms, even during surgery, um, that laryngeal injury occurs. So the next time you see a patient post-extubation, just assuming laryngeal injury is there should be at least enough to get you questioning and to get you scoping that patient. So along those lines, and interestingly enough, there are no guidelines for who should be scoped. Thankfully, as speech-language pathologists, we're the ones with the scopes in our hand, so it's a twofer if you want. We can take a look at the laryngeal injury and movement in the larynx at the very same time as we're doing the fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing or fees. And for that matter, anybody who does fees, you need to be doing a laryngeal assessment. No, you cannot diagnose a laryngeal injury, but you can surely bring it to the team's attention and you can surely bring it to the otolaryngologist's attention on the back end. Yeah. We need to be doing that, period. Yeah. Hoarseness is not a sufficient screening tool. I would be willing to bet that far greater than 90% of patients, at least the ones that I see, are hoarse. But so far, I've been pretty poor at being able to tell you who is simply swollen and red versus those who have ulcerations or worse. Yes. Hoarseness is not enough. Your ears should be perked up if you hear it. Yes. But just because you hear it does not suggest that it's mild injury. Capiche. So don't take it at face value. Got it. And if your facility is interested in purchasing a compact fee system, please consider our sponsor, EndoHD. EndoHD is a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies. EndoHD can be a cased portable system as well as a carded system depending on your needs. EndoHD representatives can help clinicians set up their fees program. The fees compact fee system is a maneuverable design that provides convenience to do fees in more locations in the hospital, ICU, CCU, PICU, exam room, patient room, to name a few. So go to www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fee systems requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. I think for for me, just listening to all that, I think my two huge take-home points are for the SLPs that are working in acute care. I think this gives you all the ammo you need to be advocating to get fees going in the ICU. I know a lot of facilities have eight, nine fees units, but they're not allowed in the ICU. You know, for what reason? You know, I think this really helps to lend some ammo to get that going. And I think you were on here earlier in a previous episode talking about the notorious 24-hour rule. And now we know the duration does have an impact on it. So now we're going to make our patients wait even longer after they are extubated before we're evaluating. You know, I think... Again, this gives us ammo to get in there faster because we do want to reduce that duration that they're not swallowing. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I'll give you some little factoids in terms of dollars and cents shortly. Oh, good. Okay. Um, I, that, you know, everybody in healthcare is after the bottom dollar, let's yes. face it. Yes. <clears throat> so there's no way of getting around that. Um, one of the things that I think we all need to bear in mind, and it was a point that I hit pretty hard in the article. 
is that you'll often hear about the size of the endotracheal tube and the thought that bigger size, larger injury, more severe injury, things along those lines. I can tell you absolutely positively no conclusions can be made about the size of the endotracheal tube and the presence or severity of the laryngeal injury. You cannot do it. And to give you some idea, most of the studies, most of the nine studies that uh, I believe even eight out of the nine even reported size, so we're missing one of them, um, took a look at endotracheal tube sizes anywhere between six and above eight in half size increments. Many of the studies in the surgical literature will leave at least a half size to a full size lower for females. When you get, take a look at the ICU literature, it is 100% uncontrolled. And whether that's simply the team, the team who is intubating somebody emergently and their choice, maybe it's their protocol. Just whatever they have handy. <laughs> I assume they have most sizes <laughs> handy. Um, you know, however they decide, I can tell you um, that across, across studies, it is not systematic. Because it is not systematic, we cannot make any conclusions whatsoever about the endotracheal tube size and laryngeal injury and or dysphagia that follows it. With that said, I want to hit home another point about the endotracheal tube that, again, I hit very hard uh, and pointed to some manufacturers in the systematic review about this. When you hear about endotracheal tube size, six, six and a half, seven, seven and a half, eight, or different, those are the inner diameter of the tube. It is not the outer diameter of the tube. And I want you to think about that for just a second. Everybody talks about the inner diameter. I got a number eight tube. I got a number seven tube, right? And that effectively is the number of millimeters in diameter of the inner lumen of the endotracheal tube. Is that the part that's causing the laryngeal injury? No. No, sir. It is the outer diameter that is causing the laryngeal injury. That is the contact point, not the inner diameter. And let me give you just a point of reference here. A number eight tube by one of the manufacturers is nearly 12 millimeters wide in an average 15 millimeter space. Okay. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, yeah, I'm not sure I got anything else in my arsenal that will. Yeah. Um, the bottom line is this, at best, physicians, respiratory therapists, anesthesiologists guess the endotracheal tube size. There have been many studies taking a look at everything from tracheal diameter to length of a finger to uh, you know whatever it might be that could be a proxy for the endotracheal tube size and getting it right so that they're not fighting with the tube to get into it, and they're making the largest diameter of the tube for foreseeable consequences in the ICU. And, and don't mistake this, they do go for the larger tube on purpose. 
I want you to think about this. On a mechanical ventilator, it's all about three things. It's pressure, oxygenation, and volume. Never mind frequency for just a moment because that's not part of this equation. If you think about just those things and you go back to your former physics course, we're really talking about the principles of Ohm's law and resistance. And what that is, is pressure and resistance and flow all relate to each other. Okay, I'm not going to get technical and give you an equation here. But the point, suffice it to say, is that a smaller diameter tube will increase pressures and reduce flow of oxygen and air into the lungs. This is not a good thing for somebody with restrictive disease. Okay? With that said, using smaller tubes, the ENTs are just fine with it course. The pulmonologists are not so fine with it. And for anybody doing a bronchoscopy by passing a scope through the endotracheal tube, they're not going to be fine with it either. Okay. They're going to want the larger bore tubes. Well, here's the issue. The guidelines that are written for critical care only go down to a certain size. There are no guidelines for the smaller tubes. So if you can request the tube and you have a willing participant to reduce the size of the tube, they also lose the guidelines. So most intensivists are not going to do that. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons, uh, in addition to the uh, flow dynamics, why you see larger tubes in a patient who's intubated. Okay. All right. One last point that I want to make um, that came out in the systematic review is that there truly is no quote-unquote best time for assessment. The reality is the sooner, the better. And with sooner being defined as when the patient is appropriate to be evaluated, not a time point. Got it. All right. And I think for me, one last final take home point, too, is I think even just, you know, being out and scoping all the patients that I do so many times I see we can't figure out where this dysphagia came from. We can't figure out why their voice sounds like this. You know, they didn't have any neurological event or anything. It was they're in for a broken hip or something like that, you know. And then we start doing the digging and the research and we find out that they were intubated in the hospital when they had surgery. And I think that's kind of when red flags can go off and we might be able to start putting some pieces together there. So I think for all of us that kind of work in rehab and are seeing these patients, I think that's what this paper can really help us do. I I would encourage everybody, um, you know, self-promotion aside. Um, there are few papers that I carry with me um, that are these seminal papers that can really talk about why speech-language pathology is necessary, what we bring to the table, um, what's missing from the clinical reg- regimens that um, are going on in any level of care. This may very be one of those papers yeah. that you'll want to carry around and say, hey, look. 
this is what's going on. We haven't really taken a look at this before, but I think we can prevent some things on the back end if you just let me get in there. Yeah. So I would encourage people to at least have a read of the paper, make their own decision about whether they want to carry it around in the first place. But it it is one of those things that it, I very specifically wanted it in the critical care medicine literature because I wanted the recognition by intensivists and the attention by anybody treating patients in the ICU to shine a very big spotlight on these issues that are just flatly being ignored. Awesome. I love it. All right. I think we can leave that well alone there. So I want to come back to a point that I made a little bit earlier, or one that I alluded to, and that's the cost of these laryngeal injuries. An inpatient, the national inpatient sample from 2006 was taken a look at by uh, colleagues of mine in the ENT department. Nasser Bhatti, B-H-A-T-T-I, is the first author on the article. The article is called Cost Analysis of Intubation-Related Tracheal Injury Using a National Database. What they took a look at were quite literally hundreds of thousands of patients um, to get some idea of what in the world is going on with costs associated with laryngeal injury. And what they found was that the average cost for an index case of tracheal injury, now this is not laryngeal injury, it's tracheal injury. Okay is over $10,000, and it increased the length of stay by just over a day, and um, costs were increased by almost $2,000 from uncomplicated cases, okay? So just that tracheal injury alone added a day and nearly $2,000 of cost as a result of that. Okay. Okay. Now, if you want to take a look at uh, things like tracheal stenosis, tracheomalacia, um, tracheoesophageal fistulas, and the you know the more complicated cases, you take a look at those folks, and the average cost weighted in the U.S. is somewhere between ten and twenty thousand dollars for patients to come back into the hospital and have those things repaired. Now, I put it to you, why should they come back into the hospital if we can find them early? Ooh, yes. So, you know, these are the things that I'm talking about. Now, moderate to severe laryngeal injuries may result in more than two days and $6,000 of costs for readmission, re-repair, okay? This, again, comes from that same study by Dr. Body. So again, if it's not the voice disorder, and if it's not the dysphagia, then how about the laryngeal injury itself and the cost for the patient to take the time off, the patient to come back to the hospital, spend days in the hospital, and thousands of dollars in hospital charges just to have something repaired that could have been identified earlier? Yes. So those of you that are advocating for fees in your facility and you're wondering what kind of cost effectiveness it can really have, these are some good numbers to be throwing around. 
So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.